When you think of art, you probably think of a highly creative industry filled with colour and ideas. But behind the scenes is a more traditional institution than you might think waiting to be disrupted. The ROI of art isn't about an asset that just appreciates in value. Art is a tool that makes you think, it makes you feel, and it helps you with creative problem solving. The barriers to the art world are being broken down as we speak, and increasingly younger and younger people are able to get access to this otherwise closed off industry. And my guest today is at the forefront of the art revolution. Paul Becker is the CEO of Art Money. Art Money is a global fintech empowering people to buy art through a win-win business model. And more than that, they're changing the way that we think about the role of art itself in our society. If you're a creative, a creator, or even just looking to improve your thinking, you're going to love this conversation. Are you ready to dive into the art world and to reveal some of their secrets? Well, let's get started. Welcome to Subject Matter. Paul, welcome to Subject Matter. It's our first episode of the new year, and I'm delighted to have you here. Fantastic. Thanks, Ben. Great to kick off the year with you. So one of the things that struck me when we initially spoke about the art industry and the forces that are the underpin it, if you like, is you said straight away that there are motivations other than money that actually drive the art industry. Could you unpack what some of these hidden motivations are? For a lot of people, it's a, a lifestyle thing, it's a social thing, it's a cultural thing. There's a lot wrapped up in status and ego and prestige. One of the secrets of the art world is there's actually lots of different, it's not one world, there's lots of different segments. And, uh, you know, the people buying million dollar plus paintings and Picassos and so on are, are very different from the, you know, the artists that create the art and and are often struggling to to make a profession and a career out of it. And so you have a lot of overlapping spheres of influence. And, um, you know, it's not all about the market per se. It is about culture and lifestyle and status and ego. And, and a lot of people have their personalities very much wrapped up in who they are and what they do within this industry. And um, so it, it's a fascinating thing to to look into, really. In a business sense, I often say, well, you know, nobody nobody ever got rich overestimating the logical nature of the art world or that it's rational. It's not. It's irrational. And so a lot of these social motivations and cues are, are just really important to understand to sort of break into it, really. Yeah, let's go a level deeper on that. Something you shared in connection with art money is that you said this is about psychology and it's not about affordability. What do you mean by that? Why is psychology so important to understand the art world? Well, so our business is, we're a fintech and we allow people to pay over time for their art. Um, so instead of paying up front, you, you pay over 10 payments, 10 months. And some of the response from the industry people, for example, is, oh, our clients can afford that. They don't need this. And I go, well, no, they don't need this, but it's a smart way. They like it. They want it. And so art has this cultural baggage because of its history that it's only for the wealthy, that only, you know, true patrons of the art, true connoisseurs can afford art. It's a very in or out world. It's 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 an interesting and ironic kind of industry because 
the message of art is think creatively, think differently, think outside the square, be challenged, be innovative. But actually, as an industry in its business practices, it's very, very conservative, very old school, almost medieval, I call it sometimes. And so you have, kind of have to almost separate the product and the artist creating and making from the commercial, the industry side of it, which is, you know, uh, often around fashion or, or culture or ego. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. you know, you, it's one of these industries that, you know, 95% of the media is about the one or 2% of people in it buying at the very high price, very obvious things. So the whole thing around in terms of what we're doing, we're increasing access to art, we make it more, more available. The reason it's all about psychology is that this is, art is a, always a discretionary purchase. Nobody has to buy art. It's a completely discretionary purchase. It's a very high value purchase and high value regardless of the actual dollar amount. It's all relative, but, you know, whether you're the first time of spending, you know, a couple of grand or a, a big collector spending hundreds of thousands or more, it, it, you know, value is a relative concept. And so nobody has to say yes or nobody has to say yes to that work. So there's this deep psychology about feeling guilty or feeling self-indulgent or feeling like, oh, I'm a bit naughty doing this or, you know, trying to rationalise this pretty irrational purchase, really. Um, so there's a whole rationale. And so, yes, we're in the, you know, behind the scenes, we're a fintech and that's our enabler. You know, fintech enables us to do what we do, but we're really in the business of helping people buy art and helping artists sell art. And this whole industry is about psychology. People want to feel good about this. They want to feel it's says something about who they are. They want to feel that they're being rational, that they're not being just emotionally out of control and purchasing these things on a whim and so on. So um, a lot of the change that we're doing is just about making things normal, that this is just something that is completely okay and normal and legitimate and it's a means to an end. And so, yeah, one of the big messages, you know, when I do my, you know, we've been raising over the last couple of years um, and, you know, when or what I say to investors in my whole presentation of the deck, you know, and they're going, well, you know, why do wealthy people need finance to buy art? Well, they don't, but it's easier for them to say yes. If they do, it's easier to get to yes. And so if there's one message to take away from this, it's about psychology, not affordability. There's two things that really ring out there for me. One is that we live in this really interesting age where industries are getting disrupted. And what that means is that our perception of these otherwise traditional industries might need to shift alongside that. And technology is the enabler of that. So when we see these companies like Art Money that are up and coming disrupting industries like art, that's a trigger for us to then think, well, how is the landscape shifting? What is the, the current that's underpinning that? The other thing that's interesting is that, to me, is that the cultural baggage you talk about with the art industry being this very lagging force really contrasts the creative perception that people have with it. And so for creative industries, um, like people who are working in media, people who are creators themselves, to understand that some of the institutions or the industries that they work in may not be as innovative as their outward persona. So the one that jumps to mind here for me is Disney. In the early 
2000s and late 90s, when Michael Eisner was CEO of Disney, he had a fantastic first uh, tenure, first decade at Disney, but his chief operating officer, Frank Wells, died in a helicopter crash. And when that happened, Michael was taken out of this role of being able to buzz between lots of Disney attractions and fair rides and merchandise and give great, great creative examples or suggestions to centralizing all his operations in a very bureaucratic way. And he had this unit that was called strategic planning. And you couldn't get spend for anything at Disney if you were a manager or have any initiative approved unless it went through this batch of about 65 Harvard or Stanford MBAs. And they were very good at what they, yeah, they were very good at what they did, but it just stifled all the innovation out of this company. And if I think about Disney as a child, like I love Disney. I have so much time for their movies, for the characters they've created, but behind the scenes, there was this totally different engine that was fueling the company. And so it seems like there's this interesting parallel between how Disney was operating and the kind of distinction between the creativity of art and the exterior, but then also the stagnant or traditional institution that you guys are disrupting behind the scenes. It's really interesting that that notion of cultural change. It is the industry sort of structures and the it's odd to talk about innate conservatism in a in a um, creative industry, but it's it's the case. It's it's the industry structure and bureaucracy and sort of lack of vision in many ways that that is the hold up. I mean, as a simple example, I mean, I can't think of yeah. So we're we're in finance. We help people buy, pay over time. Finance is the product. I mean, that's not why we'll be successful. There's a million fintechs out there, and they're all better funded than we are, you know. But we we're solving a problem in the art world. That's why we'll succeed, and we're just using fintech to do that. But for example, when you know people say, "Oh, our clients can afford it. Our clients don't need this," or you know, "Why would you need to do that?" I go, "Well, this is the same people paying for their BMWs and Mercedes. Now, do you think they're going to the showroom and paying cash up front for that? Of course not. But that's what the art industry is asking you to do, and it's simply because there's been these contemporary tools have not come yet come to the art industry. So it's what is normal. I can't think of it." single other industry in the world where finance is not normalized as part of the purchase process, let alone a high value discretionary purchase. Yet the art industry hasn't got there yet. What's interesting is that you are an industry insider, Paul, but the inspiration for why this changed actually came from outside the industry. And I think that's important to underscore is that the analogy you've used there is from the car showroom. It's from outside the world of art. And it seems that a part of your thinking process was being able to take what were accepted norms in other industries and then scratch your head for a second and say, hang on a minute, why isn't this happening in art? Why is this lagging behind? You have this really great line the last time we spoke, which is that art isn't about the ROI that you make. It's about the way it makes you think. And something that strikes me is that you are democratizing access to art. Younger generation, the younger generation are being able to buy it now. And art is potentially a tool that can help them creatively problem solve. So mm. could you talk a bit about how you can use art as a tool for creative thinking? The beautiful opportunity ahead of us here is to make the world a better place in helping people who engage with art think more creatively, think differently, that art an understanding of art and just what that gives you is is an approach for creative problem solving. And I think every smart business today, every every smart employer looks for people that can solve problems. And I think, you know, people say the best art makes you think or makes you feel. 
and just those, you know, immersing yourself in an environment or just that some engagement with an environment of, of, of just questioning and thinking or feeling differently is just part of a problem-solving toolkit for individuals that is is a real life skill. You know, I mean, this is what this is what we need for for our future. People that can think creatively, that can problem solve, that can have empathy, increase critical facilities, look for, you know, increase diversity, look at things from different viewpoints, see the world differently, like Steve Jobs saw the world differently. I mean, it gives you this innate skill set. So, yes, it, it, getting back to the ROI, the return on investment, it kind of annoys me when <laughs> a lot of investors, um, also a lot of, not a lot, some collectors, you know, uh, or outsiders, Let, let's say it's outsiders to the art world, um, they go, well, what's the return on investment of art? And I say, well, you know, I think what you're asking is, if I buy it today, how much can I sell it for later? But that's not the return on investment of art. It's not the money. It's not the financial side. The return on investment of, of art is how it'll make you think and how it'll make you feel. And you'll live with that piece, look at that piece every day for the rest of your life potentially. And it'll say something. It'll say something about you. It'll be a conversation piece for your friends. There'll be a story behind it. It'll become part of your life. And, you know, like many things, the deeper you go into it, the richer the layers and the more sort of intellectually, creatively, empathetically, uh, the more, I believe, the more skills, the you know, that you'll have that are, essential in today's world and today's society. And, and I think, you know, as, as the world goes mad and crazy and explodes around us, I think those sort of skills are becoming more and more important. And whether you're talking about, you know, refugees and humanitarian crisis or how to solve COVID or whatever, you know, this lateral thinking, this way of problem solving is, is just an essential and becoming more essential part of, part of our lives and, and the society that we want to live in. And I think art has a, a really strong place in that. The interesting thing about arts compared to the society we live in is that there's infinite amounts of media out there. We live in an age of abundant information. You can scroll on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, pick your poison forever and not be done. Art is fixed. So when you purchase a painting or you purchase a sculpture or a statue, it's there with you. It doesn't change. There's no recycling. It's right there. And so in this world where we're primed to consume more and more, art is very, it's scarce. And what I think is interesting about what you were saying, Paul, is that when you look at a painting or you look at a piece of art, you peel back the layers on it bit by bit. And it's the exact same as reading books. So I have some books over on my coffee table over there that I've read half a dozen times. And going through those same passages five or six times unpeels a layer. Mm. I think it's much better to read the hundred best books multiple times than to try and read every single book in the library. Because last time I checked, there's over 130 million <laughs> books that are published on Google. So good luck getting through all of those. Um, it's better to pick the things that are really great. And so art's an example of that. It kind of, it fuses with that philosophy where instead of trying to consume everything, just consume the best of the things that are meaningful to you and use that as inspiration to prompt, as you say, how it makes you think and how it makes you feel. I think one of the secrets of the art world is that it's not just an object on a wall that has a price on it's a story. The artist is telling you a story. And if that story in, engages you or you find a connection with that story, then that's that's where the magic happens. 
I kind of feel that the art industry needs to become more of a storytelling business and tell these stories. Every work has a story, the story of the work, the story of the artist, the story of what that means to you, and it means things for different people. And that's the beauty of it, unlocking that, the storytelling. And, mm. you know, the storytelling of just one unique experience. You know, I also think the art world needs to become more experiential, but anyway, I could go on. So, <laughs> but yeah, that that's the, the point being finding that connection, that unique, personal, individual one of a kind in the world connection amongst the plethora of things out there is, is is very relevant, I think. You alluded to there that you would like this to become more experiential. So if you were, and I think a skill that is so vital in life and in business today is being able to sell yourself. It's knowing the story of you, being able to walk into a room and deliver a 30 second, 60 second, three minute pitch on you and have someone be like, wow, I need to talk to this person because mm-hmm. everyone has that inside of them. So if you were putting your storytelling hat on and you were looking to get someone interested in a piece of art beyond what the art is, how would you start bringing that art to life? Well, the best way to do that is to introduce the artist, the person who's made the work, because that's where mm. the story is. You know, you're not looking at passively you know you can do this as well the lines on the work or the brush strokes or anything it's who made this why did they make it where does it fit in to what they've been doing in the world i also love steve jobs and and um you know so rather than just looking up picking up an ipod and saying well how many songs does this play what does this do you know let's look at the whole arc of what happened and how that industry was revolutionized and you know where it happened and then you know and the fact that he was a man that was not afraid to cannibalize his own invention by putting it on an iPhone and totally. you know, only wanted to have four things on the desk. So that whole story about the person behind it is actually more compelling usually than the work. And generally speaking, it, it's that's, again, the storytelling comes from the creator, the maker, and then it's this living, breathing thing. And, and so, so the short answer is, talk to the artist or at least find out about the artist and find out about the history because that then gives the whole thing a context and it becomes alive. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting reflection of the the state of media today and where we're heading, which is that increasingly people are trusting institutions much less mm-hmm. and following people much more. So you don't look for recommendations from the Wall Street Journal. You look to your favorite columnist at the Wall Street Journal or your favorite creator online in your niche if you want to kind of break it down. And it's interesting to hear you say this because this same trend is playing out in the art world, or maybe it's been there in the art world for a while with the the art and artist relationship, but I certainly think it's being catalyzed. And so when I think about the the growth of art into the 2020s, and I think NFTs are going to be a really interesting part of this, people buy NFTs because of the artist, because of the person behind it and what they stand for as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how more artists confuse their personality with the work that they're doing as well. The other thing that's interesting about this industry is that Many industries have been disrupted by cutting out the middleman. So, you know, you, again, you look at Uber and Airbnb, you know, cut, cut out the middleman and, and make it more efficient and bring the buyer and the seller together. You know, even though the art world now lives on Instagram and artists can connect directly with their market on Instagram, the art world's a bit different to those things because art has no intrinsic value. 
And so you need a tastemaker to say, this is worth 10,000, this is worth 1,000, and this is worth 100,000. Or a tastemaker to say, this artist is hot, they're going to go somewhere. Or a tastemaker to say, wow, look at this, you know. Because artists, generally speaking, 95, 99% of them are not good at doing that themselves, and that's not an independent view. On the buying side, many people don't really trust their taste enough, or they're still on that journey to trusting their taste. So you kind of, in the art market, the middleman being the gallerists, maybe the auction houses, but let's call them the gallery system, I don't think that's going to disappear because they're the cultural tastemakers, and you need that layer to validate commercial pricing and validate trends and validate the fashion. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, Paul, is a phrase that you mentioned the last time we spoke, which is, the world is full of gunners. I thought this is a really uh, interesting phrase. Could you explain what that means to you, please? Yeah, well, it's a very personal thing. My father used to say it all the time. Um, my father was, you know, the world's full of I say gunners, but goners, I've got to say, because people are like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And what mm. he said was that the world's full of goners. If you can be a kind of person that says what, that does what you say you're going to do, it's really, really simple. If you do what you say you're going to do, then that will put you in a category of, you know, a few percent of people. There's only a few percent of people in the world that, if they say they're going to do something, you can rely on them and trust them that they're going to do it. Something that I think compounds over the course of a lifetime, just like a, a well-placed piece of art, is integrity. Mm. And if you're someone who's known for your integrity and is known for keeping your word, then that reputation can carry through your life and open doors years down the line that otherwise might have been closed for you. Well, I'd like to think that that's a sort of embedded cultural part of our organisation. I mean, I often say to my team, you know, we're in the business of trust. You know, forget fintech, forget mm. this, forget the art. Well, you know, we're in the business of trust. You know, we're asking people to give us a lot of confidential information in an industry that's not used to doing that at all. You know, if we as an organisation can always follow through on what we say we're going to do, if we, you know, I look for it in interviews with our team, you know, if and we all know we, people we work with that, you know, there's one or two people that, Actually, you know, when that person says they're going to do it, I'm pretty confident it's going to happen. I'm very confident it's going to happen. And they're the kind of people I want to work with. They're the kind of people I want on my team. That I don't have to think about it. I don't have to stress about are they going to do it or not. I just know. Just I can happens. take them at their word. They say they're going to do it. I'm confident. I'm relaxed. It's going to happen. For people listening, for you to be saying this as a CEO and to allude to that there's people in your team that you can think of and think, this just gets taken off my plate. When they mm -hmm. say they're going to do something, mm -hmm. that trust then compounds because yes, you're in the business of trust with the art world, but every business is in the business of trusting their employees. Mm. And so if you can become one of those people that your CEO, if you're in a smaller company or your line manager, if you're in a larger company, thinks of as the person that they can go to and just trust that something's going to happen, that starts the snowball of opportunity yeah, absolutely. in exactly the and, same way. And, and I'm, I'm probably more of the CEO style of try and get really good people and get out of their way, you know, give them point mm. in the right direction and get them on board with our goals sure. and our cultural values. And But if they're smart, good people, then you don't want to micromanage them. You actually want to let them do their job and get out of the way. And, and the trust, as you say, the trust is a huge part of that. Or look, you know, 
things happen in life. Um, but you know that if something happens, if shit happens, then they're going to come back to you and say, well, look, this has happened. Here's how I'm dealing with it. What do you think? You know, and you're going to know. You don't, and it takes a lot of, it's not just taking the work off your plate. It's taking the stress of worrying about it off your plate, you know, if you can really deeply rely on them. And it's, it's a very scalable kind of approach. I'd love to wrap up today by looking into our crystal ball, because I think you're in a very interesting industry that is changing rapidly, and you're at the, the forefront of making that happen. So if we zoom out to the coming decade and how you're going to be changing this industry on a global scale, talk to us about where you see the art industry heading. What do you think the 2020s has got in store for your industry? Yeah, wow. Well, I love how you've picked 10 years because um, I'm a believer in, I think it was Bill Gates said, we overestimate what we can do in a year. I'm certainly guilty of that. And we underestimate what Mm -hmm. we can do in 10 years. So I often kind of think, well, I don't want to wait 10 years. I'm too impatient for that. Let's let's make it five. What can we do in five years? Um, Yeah. Well, I suppose we're in the business of culture change and we want to change the culture of this industry to just accept that best practice, whether it's tech, whether it's fintech, whether it's, you know, more social emphasis, more experiential. You know, I I think the art world will move into a more holistic, experiential. I think that's the key to the growth of the art world, that it's not just about objects and prices. I mean, you see that already with art fairs, for example, even though art fairs have probably peaked and are doing it tough at the moment. Um, You know, that's an example of how even when people are buying million-dollar paintings, it's still about an experiential or social world. You know, they're sharing things. Mm. People are human. And, and you know, this power that art has to be one of a kind and therefore talk about it, uh, you know, it, it's a um, it's leverage for, for social and experiential things. So, you know, like, hey, we're a fintech, but actually that's just a tool we're using to create change in this art world. So for us, it's about using the tools, the tech tools, the fintech, the finance, you know, to almost be invisible. This is a bit like a referee or an umpire in a game. You know, you don't want to be focusing on them. You you know they're doing a good job if you don't see them. You know, we're sort of in the background. Mm. Uh, that we're the enabler. You know, enablers are a really strong word. You know, we're enabling people to do what they want to do in a less friction, more responsible, more manageable way. And so, yeah, I, I think we're in the business of culture change. The more we can change culture in our in our industry and as there's not just one industry or there's a whole it's a whole lot of overlapping industries and overlapping buyers and collectors and overlapping artists and sellers you know there's a trust culture change nuance subtly understanding social experiential all those things matter a whole lot in the art world so it's it's a world away from going oh you're a finance company you know, that's, that's, mm. <laughs> it's just a tool. Um, that's just one part of this, like, very well, that's, large that, That's kind of a tool that we're using to make the change, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, back to Steve Jobs. I mean, it's not a race between who's got the fastest processor. It's about how beautiful it is, what the experience is. So we're sort of changing, you know, I suppose we're trying to, you know, move the goalposts a bit in what we're doing and, uh, you know, just welcome more people into this world and show them what, what's there and what you can get out of it and how it can change your life. And I think that's what the world needs at the moment. 
I think that's an excellent place to leave it, realizing that if you're building technology, yes, you might be changing the user's life, but that can lead to a ripple effect, which has a much larger change in how they perceive your industry and how they show up with their lives and friends. I know something I'm certainly taking away from this is that the ROI of art isn't just having a piece that appreciates in value. It's how it makes you think, how it makes you feel, and that that's a very scarce activity and a very special activity that people can invest in as well. Paul, if people want to follow you and keep up with your ideas online, where would be the best place for our audience to do that? Uh, well, personally, Instagram and Twitter. Um, so yeah, I'm sort of underscore Paul, underscore Becca, underscore, I think. Um, so yeah, Twitter's more ideas and thoughts and Instagram's a little more visual. Uh, Money's also got a great Instagram feed. So, um, but yeah, yeah, the usual things, usual suspects, LinkedIn as well, but um, Instagram and Twitter are a great place to start. Thank you, Ben. You're welcome. I would expect nothing less from an art company having a great Instagram feed. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be got to be part of the recipe. Awesome. Paul, this was uh, a lot of fun. Thanks for making the time. Appreciate it, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and want more insights to help you get ahead personally and professionally, make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with our latest content. It makes a big difference in helping our content get discovered. And so I'd really appreciate it too. If you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, I'd love to hear them. You can drop us a comment on YouTube or message me directly on Twitter. My handle is at Ben Bradbury underscore. I'll see you next time.